This week I was um, spending some time reading um, some stories. One of the stories I came across was a, of a woman who decided that she was going to be the person who cooks in her family after she got married because she had tasted her husband's cooking and thought that that was not going to be anywhere near good enough for, for her going forward. So she decided, listen, I'm going to take over that part of our family. Are you okay with that husband? And she's like, yeah, sure. Yeah, you know. Um, so she learned, as you do, from, from her mom and uh, wanted to cook a ham. So she went over to her mom's house and uh, her mom cut the front end of the ham off and the back end of the ham off and put it in a pan and shoved it in the oven and they cooked it. It was really good. So she decided to go home to do the same thing. She bought a ham, cut the front end of the ham off, the back end of the ham off, and then put it in the oven and cooked it. It was really good. Husband, after the meal, what they had with their friends, said, that was really, really good ham. I just have never eaten a ham where the front end and the back end are cut off. Why did you cut the front end and back off of the ham? And she said, well, that's how, that's how you do it. And he said, I, is it? And uh, so she said, well, my mom, this is how my mom does it, so I'll, I'll call her. There's probably there was a reason for it, like, you know, there's all the bad stuff goes to the edge, right? Just like, like crust and bread, you know, it all goes to the edge, it's all horrible on the edges. So, so she called her mom, her, and uh, she said, mom, why is it that we cut the front end and the back end of the ham off when we, when we cook it? Is it because it's the, those parts are really bad and, and diseased or something? And her mom said, no, I just, that's how I fit it into my pan, right? <laughs> I was thinking when I read that, that that's, that's really the way we learn stuff, isn't it? Most of the, most of the time, the stuff that we do in our lives, uh, and most of the things that we do in our lives are, are, are learned by osmosis. It's not, we, don't, we don't critically evaluate the things we're being taught by those uh, we respect. We just sort of say, oh, that's, that's how you do that particular thing, and then we copy it, and this is going to go on for generations, and you end up finding that you're doing something that you never really thought about by following the examples of people you never questioned before. When I came back from uh, New Zealand with my wife, we went to a football game in the United High School football game in the United States. If you've never been to Friday night football in the U.S., you really should take some time and do it. It's a, a delightful experience. One of the things that you'll notice in the states is that there's they give a lot of prominence to cheerleaders. There, um, I, I grew up in that setting and never raised a question about the way cheerleaders cheer in the U.S. But when I went away. Uh, New Zealand has no cheerleaders. If you go to Europe today, they just don't, they don't really have cheerleaders at soccer games and things like that. And so it's a kind of a uniquely North American thing, especially American thing. And you have these, these girls dressed in small outfits uh, along the side of a football game, oftentimes standing in the way so you can't see or things like that. But, but there they are, and they do particular actions. By the way, if you are a cheerleader here, God bless you. It's an amazing, it is an amazing thing. But I, I want you to evaluate with me, though, the way that you, that you cheer and the way that cheerleaders cheer, because there's certain things that they do that, are, that we don't usually do. So, for example, when cheerleaders clap, they, they don't, you and I, we, we do this. When they clap, they do this. Okay? Nobody claps like this. So if you're in your house this afternoon and the Seahawks are winning, praise God, let's, Lord, let this, you know, then the Seahawks are winning. You're not going to be standing up doing this. Good job, Russell Wilson. You are the best. Right? That's not going to happen. If it, if it does, you stop drinking that stuff, all right? People don't do this. Um, have you noticed their jumps, the cheerleaders' jumps? Uh, remarkable, 
jumps. They're not the kind of jumps you and I would ever do. So just so you know, this is the, it always starts with a clap and then it ends with a clap, but in between. <laughs> All right. Okay, in between, this is what it happens, okay? Right? Yeah, you're welcome. But have you ever seen anybody jump that way in any part of your life ever? Ever. Like if somebody did, maybe in a hurdler, but if the hurdler did that, you'd be like, you probably should get some hurdling lessons. Right? But they, so if you ask the cheerleader, why is it that you're jumping like that? They would probably say, well, that was, that's how I was taught. By who? Well, the person who taught me cheer. All right. And you went to that person, asked them, why do you hurdle like that? Or sorry, jump like that. Well, the person taught me cheer. And then you go to that person, who taught you that? The person taught me cheer. And eventually there's probably some lady at one point who said, let's mess everybody up and make them look stupid, right? So they do the little jump. <laughs> this is the way we learn stuff though. Most, most of the things we learn, most of the patterns or the examples that we follow, we follow uncritically. We learn the things we learn by osmosis. We're just around it. So a lot of the times, the ways that we live our lives are just through the examples of people that we don't question and we just kind of do what we do. But what if you decided that you were going to start living your life emulating, following the example of people that you really wanted to follow the example of? You said, listen, I think that that person, especially as it pertains to following Jesus, I think that that person does it really well. So I'm going to spend time around that person. This is really what it means to follow Jesus, right? I mean, we spend time around Jesus. We spend time around Jesus' people and stuff like that so that we, that we learn how to follow. But what if you were really particular and you said, I'm going to be mentored by that person. I'm going to follow that person's example. Who would you choose? I mean, what kinds of, what kinds of people in your life right now would you point at and say, yes, if I were going to make a decision about following Christ, I'm going to follow him just like that person followed. When it comes to preaching, I actually, I, I did that a number of years ago. My, my sister-in-law lived in New York City in the 1990s. She used to give tapes to my father-in-law who lived in eastern Washington State of this guy who's a pastor, her pastor, named Tim Keller, Redeemer Presbyterian Church. My father-in-law was so enamored with this guy's preaching, he used to send them across the ocean to me in New Zealand, and I would plug those little tapes into my tape deck on my car, and I'd listen to them over and over again. I remember after doing this for about six months, I mean, I had buckets of tapes. After six months, I remember stopping on the side of the road one day and praying earnestly, Lord, if you can help me to preach like this man, if you could help me somehow to learn what this guy thinks, the way he thinks, I just, you need to expose me to more of what this guy is doing, how he's doing it. So I went in a deep dive with Tim Keller and I ended up meeting him a number of years later after spending seriously 10 years just devouring anything he had to say and just finding him to be a, a mentor from a distance. I met him actually at a, a conference. It was about 7,000 people at the conference, and when he wasn't speaking, he was kind of down on the floor, and he was surrounded by hundreds of other guys, which made me realize, oh, I'm not the only one that's been this way. But you, I couldn't, you couldn't get to him, so I just sort of sat in the back, and then the crowd dispersed because he had to go up and speak on the stage. 
So he went over and he walked up on the stairway to the stage, about to give his, his message for the conference. And I saw, this is my chance, right? It would be really awkward because I'm going to stop him right before the pulpit. I went up right to the front of the stage. He was about three feet from the pulpit. He was about to get his notes out. And I said, Dr. Keller, Dr. Keller. And he kind of looked at me and then looked away and smiled at everyone. And I said, Tim, Tim, Tim. <laughs> and he's, he looked at me and knew I wasn't going to be deterred, and so he reached out his hand, and he said, hi. And I said, hi, I'm, I'm Jeff Bucknam, and I held his hand. You know that awkward hand-holding when you shake someone's hand, and you're like, can I, no, okay, we're still, no, we're still there, okay. So that's what I was doing, holding his hand, and I was like, okay, so here's the thing. I, you know, my sister-in-law goes to your church, Heidi Grant Murphy, I was in New Zealand and stuff. He knew Heidi. She was an opera singer. I, oh, Heidi, yes, I know Heidi. Okay, now he's down on one knee, and I'm like, I got you, right? So we're there talking, and I'm like, yeah, you've mentored me, and I just want to thank God for you and tell you how great it was and just keep doing what you're doing. It's just so fantastic and stuff like that. Honestly, I just went on for about a minute, just whatever, and he was, uh-huh, 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 and finally he's holding my hand, and he said, you know, um, I have to go and preach now. So we maybe talk to each other later. Really? Really? Can we? Can we? Like at a coffee shop? Or no, no, no. no. We'll just maybe see each other later. Okay. And he pulled it away. And I walked back with my hand. I haven't washed it since, right? <laughs> this guy I met a, week, a few weeks ago, uh, he, he's a 70-year-old man who has been involved in ministry for years and years, and he is the director of a church planning organization that's planted over 250 churches. And I told him after spending three days of training with him, I said, brother, I got to tell you that you are a true Christian gentleman. And if I'm 70 years old and I look anything like you, I will count myself blessed. T tell me what it is that you do. You have people like that in your life. I'm sure that you do. There's people that you, in all areas of, of your life, your workplace, your parenting, where there's people you point out and you say, that person is the one I want to follow. And in, and in the Christian faith, there are people that you say, I want to follow that person. If you, now listen, if you went to Scripture, you of course would say, Jesus is the one I want to follow like that. But there are other people in the Bible who would volunteer and expressly do volunteer for you to follow them. They put their hands up and they say, hey, if you want to know what it looks like to be a Christian, follow me as I follow Christ. Now that's a line from the Apostle Paul. He's inviting you and saying, listen, if you want to know what it looks like to be a Christian, just in the everyday stuff of life, look at how I am. Look at what I do. Use me as an example. Now, I tell you all of that because Romans 15, verse 14, is a passage where Paul turns the corner in the book of Romans. He's done with all the doctrinal stuff. He's done with talking to the church about their, about their fights and things. He's, he's now going to say, okay, let me give you a personal ministry report this is what I'm doing next. It's very much coming down the home stretch of this book, and he has turned his attention toward personal issues. And let me just tell you about me. Let me give some greetings to some of my friends. But in this, you actually do. This is the normal stuff of life, the way that you just would end a letter normally. But in it, you actually see a series of examples of how this guy thinks and acts that might be challenging to you and me. And there's certainly examples to follow. So I've got four of them. Four examples that Paul sets for us to follow and how it is that we should follow Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. Here's the first one, okay? Number one, believe the best in those you lead. Make it a habit to believe the best in those you lead. 
So, verse 14 of Romans chapter 15. I myself, writes Paul, am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Yet I've written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again. And he has written really boldly to them. He said some really hard things. Listen, you guys need to get over this these disputable matter issues. Some of you are weak in it and some of you are strong and the different issues depends on what it is. You might be weak in some and strong in the other, but you're fighting over stuff that you really should fight about. He's been pointed with them at, at places in this book, challenging them. Maybe, maybe you don't actually understand the gospel and its implications. Said some really hard things in Romans. But what he says here is, look, it's not that you couldn't have instructed yourselves. It's not that you don't have the knowledge. It's not that you guys aren't good. It's just, I just want to remind you. This sounds very much like my wife. When I get really sad, she sits next to me on the bed and listens to me complain about most of you. I'm <laughs> kidding. Just, just a couple of you. And she holds my hand, and she will listen to what I say, and then at the end, she'll start preaching. She's a great preacher to me. So she'll start preaching. And we're there for a while because she's long-winded like every preacher. You know, she just goes on and on. She'll tell me all sorts of things that are true about God, his word, the way that we should recognize our service to God here. And, and at the end, she'll always end it by saying something like, honey, I know I'm not telling you something that you don't know. Like, like you've been in seminary. You, like, you know this stuff. You know it. You just need to be reminded of it. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's basically saying, listen, in light of all the stuff that I've just told all you guys, it's not that you didn't know the stuff. It's just you, you need reminding of it. You're full of goodness. You're competent to instruct one another. You have lots of knowledge. This is a lovely approach to leadership. It, it really is. And by that, I mean, I mean um, Paul does not emphasize the things that they stink at. He emphasizes the things they're good at. And this is a pattern in his ministry. Whenever he's dealing with these churches that he's leading, he comes to them and he has lots of hard things to say. But his emphasis as a general rule in most of his books is to say, look, look at the Spirit's work in your life. Look at how things are going. Look at what God is doing in your midst. Yes, you've got these other issues and they're not so good. We'll talk about all of them. But I want you to know that I see God moving in you. And I rejoice. I so was watching a video the other day of a, of a father watching his son play soccer, right? So he had, it's an iPhone video, right? And he starts by pointing it out to the kid. And what's funny about it, he's running along the side of this field with the kid. He's the kid's kind of out on that side, and he's a winger. And so he's running alongside and he's yelling to his son the whole way Come on, left, left foot, right foot, okay, left, right, okay, dribble the inside. Oh, you gave that one up. That's okay. Get back up. Come back this way. And he's running the whole way. Finally, his son gets the ball and he's running down the field and he ends up scoring a goal. The father's like, Okay, put it on your right foot. Shoot, shoot, shoot. He shoots it to the far side of the goal and it goes in. And the father turns the phone around, you know, the little button that. So he makes it a selfie. He turns his phone around and he's like, ah! He runs down the side like, ah! It's my son, it's my son! It's a lovely, it's a lovely photo. It just looked like me, right? I was like, oh, I could have made millions had I posted that, right? 
But what's, what's delightful about it is that if you watch, like if you, when you watch the kid play soccer, he's really not very good. Like he, he's not. If you're watching it and know anything about soccer at all, you're like, yeah, he kind of stinks. But his father's not talking about the stink. He might talk about that later. Seriously, he might sit in front of the TV and say, you know, actually this part, you don't want to fall down right there. You probably want to keep dribbling or whatever it is. But he's emphasizing the whole way, the positive. This is what good fathers do. They just fan into flame the good things they see in those they care for instead of burning them to the ground with criticism. That's what good leaders do. There are times to correct, even with the Apostle Paul. If you read the book of Galatians, you will see the time to correct. He doesn't even give an introduction to the book. He's like, let's just get straight to this. If anyone's teaching you another gospel, let them be anathema. Let them go to hell. Let me say it again. At the end of the book, he says, I see with what big letters I've written. Usually he used a secretary who could write properly, but he had bad eyesight. He said, look at the big letters. It's a thousand font. I wrote it. It's an angry letter. He's not usually like that, though. Most of the time, he's dealing with churches like in Corinth and in Thessalonica and in Rome that have all sorts of problems, but his emphasis in each one of them is, hey, man, I see God's work in you. It's amazing. I just want to remind you of a few things. Is this the way you lead? You say, well, I'm not a leader. Rubbish. You are a leader. Every one of us lives in a leadership and, and, and submission relationship somewhere. So if, you're, if you are a, a father here, how are you leading your family? Is this, like if I asked your kids, would they say, yeah, that's exactly the way my dad leads. Like that father running along that sideline. Like the Apostle Paul fanning into flame the gifts he already sees. Or is it always like, you're not good enough. Figure it out, son. If you're a parent, is it the way you lead, lead your, your kids? It's just the way you lead your, your business, your company. The, do the people who are your employees, do they say that? Well, I only have one employee. Would they say that? Would they speak about you as somebody who is fanning into flame the good that they see and cheering them on in those grand moments? That's how Christians lead. So we learn from Paul that we need to believe the best in those we lead. Second, Verse 15, listen, recognize the grace. Recognize the grace. Verse 15, uh, yet I've written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace. The reason I've been bold with you is because of the grace God gave me. What grace, Paul? Well, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, that's an interesting phrase. I, I, I speak to you boldly because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. There are different ways that Paul uses the word grace in his books. Usually, when you come across the word grace, he's talking about the grace that you've received in salvation. So listen, you are a sinner. You deserve God's judgment. Instead of getting God's judgment, you've received Christ's sacrifice on your behalf on the cross. And by belief, by faith in him, you now have eternal life. That is a grace. That is a grace. That's usually what he's talking about. That's not what he's talking about here. What's the grace he's talking about here? 
Well, it's the grace God gave him to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. It's the grace God gave him in his calling. It's the grace God gave him in making him an apostle and a missionary. He's saying that was a grace. God didn't need to do it. I deserve something very different, but he's invited me into this wonderful, phenomenal grace. Now that is a, that is a surprising way to talk about his apostleship because when you look at what his apostleship has gotten him into, I'm not sure you and I would call it a grace. So let's, let's call the apostle Paul to the stand. He's gonna give self-testimony now. And our question to him, as, a, as the great lawyers we are, is, Apostle Paul, describe for us what has happened in your apostle, apostolic, your apostle ministry. Well, here's his answer, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. 24. All right. Well, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one and 39 whips on five different occasions. Three times, I was beaten with rods. Once, I was pelted with stones. Three times, I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger, let's see, from, from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, also in the country, at sea, and from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I've often been cold and naked despite every or besides everything else. I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. What a grace! I praise God for this grace. He's in the city of Lister at one point, this little city. The crowd's on his side for a period. They actually want to worship to him. He's trying to stop them. No, don't worship me, worship God. But some other people from another city come in, turn the crowd against him, and then they stone him. It's probably what he's referring to when it says pelted by stones there. They, they stone him. Now, the rules for stoning somebody are not like you get two, and you get two, and you get two, and if you miss, I'm sorry. Right? You just... You're going to have to go home after that. No, you, you take as many, and we're not talking pebbles, you take as many large rocks as you can, you throw them at the person in the middle, and when that person is bloody and laying on the ground and not moving to the point that they are seemingly dead, you stop the stoning, cease fire, and then you drag that person outside the city and you let the buzzards or vultures come and eat their flesh. Them's the rules. So when Paul gets stoned, he does get dragged out of the city and he is left for dead because everyone thinks he's dead outside the city of Lystra and they're waiting for the buzzards to come along, but he's still breathing. And it says in that passage that Paul gets back up, presumably after a while, and goes, listen, back into the city. Hmm. Paul, perhaps you should choose a different city. But it's a grace Imagine if you walked alongside him as he's walking back into the city, limping along with blood streaming down the side of his face. What do you think of this? Such a grace. How can he say that? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, 
He explains why he doesn't lose heart in his ministry. Since through God's mercy, we have this ministry, we don't lose heart. Since through God's mercy, we have this ministry. That's why you don't lose heart, because it's a mercy, it's a grace. Why is he saying this? How can he say this? Right, so to answer that question, let me just, I wanna wanna establish two theological facts about the character of God for you, okay? Number one, God is self-sufficient. That means he doesn't need you, he doesn't need me, he doesn't need your praises, he doesn't need your worship, he doesn't need anything in order to be completely sufficient and whole in his triune goodness, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally existing as three in one, a community of friends, doesn't need you. He doesn't need a fourth member. So you get passages of Scripture that reiterate that. Paul is speaking on on Mars Hill in in the city of Athens to a bunch of philosophers, and he emphasizes this. He said, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. You ever been to a, a, a temple maybe in in Southeast Asia where uh, maybe it's Buddhist or Hindu or whatever, and they're worshiping idols there. I've been to a Buddhist temple in Macau, China, and at the bottom of the idol is a big bowl, and in the bowl are a whole bunch of oranges. The guy I was with, I said, why are they putting oranges in the bowl? And the response was, because the gods need sustenance. From oranges? Yeah, well, from whatever. They need sustenance in terms of food. They need sustenance in terms of money. They need sustenance in terms of worship. They need you. Paul's saying, no, he doesn't. Yahweh needs nobody. My mother, God bless her. I love love her so much. She, when I was little, I remember her. She wasn't really a Christian at the time, and I remember her. I asked her, why did God make the world? We believed in God generally. Why did God make the world? And my mother's response, he was lonely. No, no, um, he, he wasn't lonely. He's never been lonely. He never will be lonely. He doesn't need you. He's completely and utterly self-sufficient, one. Number two, God is completely and utterly sovereign. So you get stories in the scriptures of a guy like Nebuchadnezzar, who's the greatest king of the time in the Old Testament, and he stands out on the edge of his land, and he surveys all that he's done, and he says, I am the great Nebuchadnezzar, look at all that I have done! It is due to me, 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 the great Nebi. And God hears that and looks down and says, really? Really? Because of you? All right. So I'm going to have to take you out to the woodshed. But in this case, the woodshed is a field. I'm going to make you like an animal out in the field. And you're going to grow your fingernails really long. And your hair will come down. And you'll be like one of those characters in the It movie. Right? Gollum it. It's precious. And then until you come to your senses, you'll be out there having a good think about it. And eventually Nebuchadnezzar does come to his senses. And he gives a speech as soon as he's Sanity is restored. And part of the speech is it's all statements about God and who he is, not who Nebuchadnezzar is. And he says in those statements in Daniel 4.35, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He, Yahweh, does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. 
No one can hold back his hand and say to him, what have you done? No one has the power to stop him and nobody has the power to hold him to account. He needs no one. He is everything. He provides power for us, not the other way around. So here's the, here's the question. Why would a completely self-sufficient, completely sovereign God elicit the help of people like you and me to do his work? Because I've seen you and me do it. It's not so good. Can't he do it on his own? Yes. But why does he elicit our help? Why is this the way that he's planned it, that people come to faith in Jesus through the preaching of the word? Why does he make it so that it's through the agency of you and your work that God's kingdom comes in the world? Why? And the answer is because he likes to share in his joy. You know, what, you know what it's like to serve God? I'll show, you, I'll show you a video of it. This is what it's like for us to serve God. Can you play this little video? <laughs> right? No, I mean, <laughs> the guy's out there and he's shoveling his, his, uh, he's, he's shoveling his driveway and he's got his kid out there. Could he shovel the driveway quicker on his own? Yes. Would it be done better on its own? Yes. Would you not have to pick up the kid when he hits his head on the ground? Yes. Why does he have the kid out there then? Well, because he wants to share the Saskatchewan joy, right? He wants to be out there and show him, look, this is where we live and we're together and look what we can do together. Isn't this is why grandpas go and they talk to their grandchildren and they say to their grandchildren, let's go out to the shed and we'll build a model airplane from some sticks I gathered and wood that I've got left over. And the kid's like, oh boy, he goes out there and they build the airplane. The boy is building the airplane. So his thumb is huge because he hit it with a hammer, right? It, we, when it's done, you don't know if it's an airplane. Might be an amoeba. We don't know. <laughs> but the boy looks at it and he holds it aloft in his mind or in his hands. And he says, oh, it's beautiful. He runs inside and he shows his mom and dad. And they say, oh, it's, it's gorgeous. It's, it's beautiful. Is it? No. It's not. Can grandpa make a better model airplane? Probably. Is he, is he put back by how much attention he has to give to the kid and work through? Yes. But what would be lost if the little boy wasn't there? And the answer is the joy that is shared in seeing it happen. Brothers and sisters, you and I complain a lot about the work that God's called us to do. We complain a lot about, you want, God, you want me to give money? God, why can't you just do it on your own? God, you want me to give my time? God, you want me to give my attention to my neighbors and others? I'm busy, I'm tired and stuff like that. Why? We treat it as a duty and yet God's there. I could do it on my own, but I've invited you in so that you can share the joy. It's a grace. It's a grace. It's a grace. It's a grace. He's not asking you to do something that's going to cost you. He's asking you to do something that he could bless you. So recognize the grace. Third, boast in the right way. Boast in the right way. Look at verse 17, the second part of it. He says, therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. That word glory Actually, is the word I, I, I boast, I, uh, I 
take pride in. It's a good translation of the word. I take pride in Christ Jesus in my service to God. In what way, Paul? Well, I won't venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I've said and done. By the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Again, the word glory means take pride in. So here, what you have in this passage of scripture is the apostle Paul saying, I am a prideful man but not in the way that you and I think of those words. Look, I think there are, there are three ways for us to handle the successes that come in our life. When something goes really well for us, when we accomplish something, there's three ways, I think, that we can handle those. Number one is the very popular way among all the athletes that I know at the professional level, and it is... Look at me! It's the Nebuchadnezzar way. Uh, me, 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 right? Uh, 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 that's my name right there. This is the approach that many take. I want to show you another video. It's video day here at Northwood. Um, I'm going to show you another video. It's actually of a bowler, not because I like bowling, but it's very funny. This guy, he, he uh, was being uh, cheered against by two guys in the crowd. Yes, there are crowds apparently at bowling. I don't, so he was being cheered against by two guys in the crowd. They weren't being loud or anything. They were just kind of clapping for the other guy. But every time this guy would do well, he would point to these guys and look them in the face and walk back. So this is, he, wins, he wins the match. And this is what he does to the, his small critics. Have a look in. Strike to claim it. A strike to claim it. And he got it! That is the greatest way to celebrate. Isn't it at the end? Who do you think you are? I am. I do this to my boys whenever I win anything over them. I stand up and say, who do you think you are? I am. So fathers, I commend you. I commend that to you in any, in any moment. It's a very funny line. But isn't this the way that we celebrate? Yeah, of course it is, right? I'm amazing, and then I'm going to tell you about it. Because I'm, I'm amazing. And that's one way that we handle it. The, the other way that we handle it is we look at that and we say, well, that's quite arrogant. And so we take a 180 and we go completely other direction and we run away from that and we say, I don't want to be arrogant. That's the worst thing to be. And so whenever anybody compliments me or I have a great success, I have to denigrate it now so that it sounds like I'm not arrogant, like who do you think you are? I am guy. So if you come and you speak to me after a sermon and you say to me, ah, it was a good sermon. I know, let's just imagine that you did that on one occasion and it was... you. I, and I, you said, that was a good sermon. I say, and I say to you, I, in my heart, I would be like, oh, okay, what do I do with this? You've recognized what you think to be a success. And you know what I usually do there? Is I usually say something like, well, you know, the passage, I mean, you'd have to be a colossal idiot to get that one wrong. And so I kind of just showed up and started talking and it worked out. Uh, I know you basically don't believe what you're telling me that it was good. It's actually completely trash. And I'm embarrassed by all of it. But... You know, God uses stupid things, right? This is, this is the way, though, that we tend to do it. So, so if we're not going to be arrogant, we're going to go the other way, and we're going to denigrate 
to success because we think that's the Christian way. And yet I want you to see that the Apostle Paul's approach here is very different from both of those. He actually says, oh, I take glory. I take pride in Christ Jesus in my service to God. In fact, I won't venture to speak anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I've said and done. Look at all I've done, all the way from Jerusalem to Illyricum near Rome. The whole world is being transformed by my words because Jesus did it. It's not about me. Who do you think you are? He is. It's not noble or humble to denigrate God's gifts in you and his work through you. It is not noble nor humble to denigrate God's gifts in you and his work through you. Rather, boast in them, not because of what they say about you, but because of what they say about God. He can even use you. Crazy. Even you. So you know the part where Moses is standing, you know your Old Testament, and maybe you're new to the faith. There's a part in the Old Testament Paul, or sorry, where Moses is standing on, on holy ground. There's a bush that's burning, and it's not burning up. This is where he meets Yahweh for the first time. They have a little conversation. Yahweh says, listen, I want you to go, and I want you to be uh, my, my emissary. I want you to be my mouthpiece to Pharaoh, the biggest, baddest guy on the block. And I want you to tell him to let my people go. And Moses is like, yeah, okay. But when I go there, and I tell him that, and they say, I'm not listening to you. What do I do? Well, take that staff over there, that, that, that stick, and I want you to throw it on the ground. He does. It's a snake. Moses is like, whoa, that's, that's crazy. Okay, pick it back up. Moses understands. He's like, I'm sorry, the snake? Pick the snake. Here, I'll get it by the tail. He picks it up, back up, and, and it's a stick again. And he's like, well, that's a cool trick. Okay, now take your hand and put it in your, in your cloak and pull it back out. Well, it's leprous. Okay, put it back in. Take it out, not leprous. You imagine Moses walking around all the time, right? He's like, this is amazing. These signs and wonders will prove to him that you are on my team, says God. But then Moses gets to the heart of his real concern. Exodus 4, verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, pardon, pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since I've spoken to your servant. I haven't gotten any better since I've been standing here talking to you with my shoes on. I'm slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said to him, okay, but who gave human beings their mouths? Who, who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Isn't it me? Isn't it I, the Lord? So go. I'll help you speak and teach you what to say. But Moses, <clears throat> I mean, just excuse me again. Pardon me. Uh, please send someone else. And then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. Why is the Lord's anger burning against this guy? And the answer is because Moses is focused on Moses and God is focused on God. Moses is like, I can't do that. Oh no, I'll either get really pompous if it goes well or it'll fail and I'll look like an idiot. And God's like, it's gonna succeed and I'm gonna look great. So boast in the right way. Finally, last one. Keep looking ahead. Look at verse 20 with me. If it, it's always been, says Paul, my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it's written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. He has an ambition. You see that word? He has an ambition to actually go to Spain. 
He's kind of like, look, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, and I've preached the gospel throughout, you know, all of from Jerusalem to Illyricum. I want to just keep going around the Mediterranean to as far as I possibly can go, because there are Gentiles out there, and I want to preach to those guys too. Paul could have said, look at all the churches that have been planted and the power of God that's been exhibited through my words and his power. Isn't that amazing? Job done. Or, like most government workers, good enough. Sorry. Good enough. There's got to be a golf course around here somewhere. It's time to retire. There's got, there's got to be some, some time for me now. Good enough. He could, just, he could just sit on it, but what does he do? Now he doesn't sit on it. He says, give me Spain. Lift up your eyes to the horizon. You see that? I want more because God has done so much. Maybe he'll do more. Maybe he'll do more. I'm telling this to a, you today largely because I, I don't know if you've stopped and reflected if you've been at Northview for the last number of years. God has done some amazing work here. God has done amazing work here. God has made it so that we planted a church in, in, in uh, Tri-City. There's about 500 people worshiping there today in Port Coquitlam. We, we replanted a church in Mission, praise God, that has about 550 people. They're close today because there's snow, but that normally you just go up there. It's a vibrant community of 850 people out in East Abbotsford. Man, that doesn't happen, guys. Not in post, post-Christian Canada. It doesn't happen. I get phone calls from people saying, how did you make it happen? I'm like, mm. Um, the Lord? It <laughs> doesn't happen. We have done some remarkable things over the last number of years, planting churches around the world. Our vision is, is to continue doing it, but it's very easy right now for us to say, hey, isn't it great what God has done through us? Let's take a break. And I'm telling you, give us Spain. There's more, there's more villages, more towns, more places in this country that need the gospel, more churches that need to be revitalized. This is not the time to sit down on our hands and say, ah, good enough. No, it's time to press forward and say, let's take it. Is it going to be risky? Yes. Is it going to cost us something? A lot. But imagine what might happen in the future when we put ourselves in the hands of the one who led us through the past. And this isn't just about the church. This is just about you. What is it that makes your heart burn? Have you seen God work in your life? In your family, in your job, in your ministry? Have you seen God work in the past? Yes. Revisit it and say, isn't that great? But it's not about then now. It's about what's ahead. What's your Spain? Let me finish all this just with uh, reading a passage of the Old Testament. It's one of my favorites, one of my great heroes of the faith that sometimes we don't think about very much. Um, in Joshua 14, this guy Caleb, who's one of the two, one of the two uh, scouts who went into the promised land and came back and had a good report. There were 10 who didn't have a good report and two who did. And Caleb comes out and he kind of reiterates what happened. He's an old man now. This is what he says, Joshua 14, verse 6. Now the people of Judah approached Joshua Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, said to Joshua, he said, you know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. 
I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. And I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But fellow Israelites who went on that day, oh, sorry, who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt in fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since that time. He said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years young. And I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to the battle now as I was then. So give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Oh, may there be more Caleb's in our day. Oh, may there be more people looking to the Spains of our world and saying, give us more, Lord for your glory and not our own. Let me pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your grace. I'm thankful for your word. And um, I, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would move us to not just hear words like this, Father, but be doers of them. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And ultimately, Father, all of our good works are products of what you've already done in our lives. But may there be great works ahead that you've prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. And may we not shrink back and cower, but instead, Father, take risks until the day that you come back and we long to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Find us faithful, we pray, in the days ahead, just as we found you faithful in the days gone by. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.